loan officers. Join the mortgage calculator as an MLO for unlimited mortgage leads and up to 250 BPS compensation. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kyle Hershey. I'm the COO of the Mortgage Calculator, joined here by President Nick Hershey and our sales manager, Jose Gonzalez. We are a correspondent lender that specializes in non-QM loans. And every Tuesday and Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, we do this show going through a loan officer training. Now, tonight's training is going to be based on conventional loans. And although we specialize in non-QM loans here at the Mortgage Calculator, we still do a lot of conventional loans as well as FHA, VA, and USDA. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is reading DU results. So desktop underwriter, really desktop originator, DO, but Fannie Mae automated underwriting system. Excuse me. So Jose actually has results from a DU that he ran that he's going to share with us, pull up and go through and read. So keep in mind for the newer loan officers out there, who might be watching, what got us to this point was getting an application from the borrower, right? And filling all of our fields in and encompass and actually originating the loan and encompass, getting it ready to run DU. Now, once Jose filled in all the fields, uh, you know, made sure everything was correct, then he ran DU. And at that point, that brought us to these DU results. So, I'll go ahead and pass it over to Jose Gonzalez, our sales manager, 27 years of experience as a loan officer and a realtor. He's read many DU before, and he's going to pull up some DU results and go through them here with us. So go ahead, Jose. All right. Good evening, everybody. Great to be with you here for this great training. Now, uh, this is a conventional loan. In this case, this is a Fannie Mae loan. Right. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are are two conventional type loans. Fannie Mae uses desktop underwriting. If you are a broker and desktop originator, if you are a lender, Freddie Mac uses loan prospector. So in tonight's lesson, we're doing the desktop or EO AUS version. Uh, for my Fannie Mae file. Now, I, I chose Fannie Mae. This is Zellery Borrower. He is on W-2 pay stubs. I don't even think he has any overtime. He's definitely not a self-employed borrower. If we were dealing with a self-employed borrower, depending on the specifics, specifically if we're talking about uh, distributions of the income versus their ordinary income reported, those would be the considerations if you were in my training today, earlier today, the loan officer training. That is the big distinction that I always that I that I brought out and I always bring up regarding Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It is basically with your self-employed borrowers. So uh, this borrower is not self-employed, and uh, we ended up with the Fannie option. So you'll notice uh, this submission number five, it wasn't that I had to run it five times before I got my approved eligible. It is because in the market that we are in uh, for this real estate deal, very competitive market, and they do ask for the DU approval to be submitted with the offer. So I gave the borrower the first page to show that he's approved eligible and it's and it was uh, to the to the sales price of the property with the exact taxes of the property so what ended up happening is he did several offers every time he was going to do an offer and if it changed and it was really hot and heavy and they were asking him for that i had to run another du so just keep that in mind you don't want to be running multiple DUs. Once you get that first run, read the findings, which we're going to do now, dissect the findings and figure out what is needed to be done to the file in order to get the approved eligible. You'll know what, what, where the deficiencies may lie, right? So let's go on with it. Now, <clears throat> we would all love to have a file like this one, right? You know, 49% LTV, given a big down payment. But a little bit of the backstory, this is the second uh, time that I do a loan for this borrower. 
First time I refinanced uh, his home, and now he, he is selling his home, has plenty of money to put down on the one that he's buying. Hence, we have a nice 49% LTV, which is good because you see the housing and the debt to income, you know, 46.28 on the DTI. Keep in mind when you are looking at these files, seeing what your findings are, hoping to get that approved eligible. One of the things we also note in our loan officer training is that if you need to get a DTI above 45% and your LTV is 95%, there's a good probability, very high probability that you're not going to get it unless the credit score is 700 or above. And their cash out refis or rate and term refis, that also comes into play when you're maxing out the LTV. If you're not at a 700 or above credit score, you're probably not going to get an approved eligible above 45 or maybe 45 and change. But you're definitely not going to get a 48 or a 49% DTI with a 670 or 680 credit score, most likely, if you're at the maximum LTV for the program, whether it's a cash out, rate and term, or whether it's a purchase. So very important note to consider there. Now, 5.75 was the rate that we ran this at. He is doing some buy down. We did get a good amount of bona fide. So we are able, he is able to buy the rate down to 5.75%. 410,000 is the sales price and the appraised value that we put, even though it ended up appraising for that. He has 16 months of reserves. So that's one of the other factors that automated underwriting is going to look at when they're sizing up the deal. Depending on the LTV, as you're going to see now when we get into the assets, sometimes they don't ask you for reserves, but this is just sizing up the deal there. In some cases, that is what makes or breaks your approved eligible is reserves. So now we get into pretty information. It is a condo, one unit, primary residence in Miami, Florida. So here we go. Risk eligibility. Now, this is a good sign here. Value acceptance eligible. You'll see when we get a little bit further down in the report, once we talk about the appraisal, You'll see a nice little present we got there. So here, obviously, it's approved eligible, so this is all going to be good. So risk profile appears to meet Fannie Mae guidelines. Obviously, underwriters going to give it the final checkoff on it, make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Jose, yeah. real quick. Uh yes. The on the risk eligibility. So here, what are the what you know? You're approved eligible. You're walking on water here. You're all to the good. What are the type of things we're going to see there when we're getting, uh, you know? Well, not- if it doesn't meet it, it's going to tell you the you know this case does not meet because you received a refer and eligible or refer eligible whatever it may be in the case. It's going to tell you this case file does not meet. Fannie Mae guidelines because you receive a refer eligible. It'll give you a couple extra little words, but it won't really tell you much in this section here. It's just going to tell you what you already know, but where it does tell you some of the scenarios, it would be right here. Uh, in my case, this deal's case, the following risk factors represent strengths, right? But that would be if it was not an approved eligible. The following risk factors represent the weaknesses in the borrower's loan application. And it could be the combined loan to value. It could be the, uh, you know, excessive delinquencies. You know, it'll give you a little message here for, for you to look for. And then you just have to go through all of the different sections and the findings. But this is where it tries to highlight uh, what is the strength of so my customer's case. Uh, credit profile was good. Combined loan-to-value ratio, nice and low. Also a nice, nice strength there. So now we go 
on here. Let me put the screen up a little more. Okay. So this is just some legalese here, but now here's some of the stuff we got to look at here. Must close on or before it's 9 8 2023. That's due to the age of the credit report, right? This credit report, I believe, was run on 5 8, probably, and its credit report usually is good for 120 months. Now, that, that says must close on or before. Now, you know, when it's uh, at the investor, they're reviewing the documents, they may ask us to, you know, ref- you know, not just do a refresh, but maybe ask us for a new credit report because they certainly don't want it to expire before it closes and they got to sell the loan and all that good stuff. So uh, rule of thumb is uh, if your credit report at the time you're going to submit the loan is going to be 60 days or older, you would need to get a new credit report to submit to for underwriting review. See, so right here, all credit documents must be no more than four months old on the note date. For guidelines on the age of the appraiser property inspection, they're referring us to the Fannie Mae selling guide. So we don't have a home equity line of credit on the property, but they're letting us know that the maximum CLTV, if we were doing this as a combo loan with a HELOC, we could go up to 97% on the purchase. So those of you out there looking at those combo loan opportunities, note that this is where you can find out the maximum that you could do for your particular loan. But they're still telling you to verify terms for compliance with the selling guide. So now some of the things I did in the application was I put a couple of accounts that were going to be, well, one account that was going to be paid off where I had a balance of 30120 So it's telling me include the evidence of the payoff. Now, in my case, my borrower already went and paid it off before the closing. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to uh, ask for a credit supplement and the credit supplement uh, will verify the new balance as zero and that it's closed. And that will be all the documentation that underwriting will require rather than getting messy and and waiting till the end and providing a payoff and all that kind of stuff. He got the money already. He paid it off and I'll do a credit supplement and that'll take care of that condition there. So now we have some omitted accounts that the system omitted and it's uh, it is the loan on his current residence that is being paid off with the closing of his home. So that's going to be paid off way before he closes on the purchase that he's doing right now. So I marked it as pending sale in the application. When that happens, automated underwriting knows to not include the liability, the monthly liability in the DTI, but then it's going to ask for documentation to support the omission. So you'll see, I think there's going to be conditions a little bit down, but that's going to be the closing statement. Uh, from the purchase, or excuse me, from the sale, the closing statement from the sale, and then the transaction history from the checking account showing the funds going in, plus, that's for the assets part, plus I'm going to do a credit supplement showing that this account is now paid off with a zero balance, and at the same time, I'm going to use that supplement to update the payment history because you know that when you close, Uh, You have to have the payment history updated through the current month. The credit report was probably only reporting through May, since it's a May 8th report. So I have to bring the credit report current to reflect the June payment as well, which is going to be a condition. So the credit supplement is going to take care of those two items. What what loans is that required on, Jose? What kind of loans? Excuse me? What What kind of loans would a supplement be required on? On every loan that I know of, if you're every say- <laughs> loan that's ever been done in the history of loans, guys. So yeah, what Jose's talking about is not just conventional either. This is every loan yeah. ever. So just pay attention. There. Yeah, it's a good little nugget. 
on every loan you need to. Now, this is a lot easier than, you know, having to provide payment histories and all that kind of stuff. You can't get a supplement to uh, show, to update the payment history, you know, bring it current. And in this case, show that it's a zero balance already paid off. So now here is the interesting part as well of the file is when we're talking about the income documentation, right? We can never assume that tax returns are going to be needed. It is awesome when tax returns are not needed because that uh, that means that I'm not going to have to provide a tax transcript, a record of account tax transcript. Those can cause a delay if the if the tax returns were just filed and may take a week, two weeks, three weeks. If we're in the middle of the tax season, it could take a month for for the rest system to update and be able to provide the record of account, in which case we'd have to try to find a workaround. But in this case, <coughs> excuse me. Um, can I can I say something there, Jose? I sure. Make sure everybody's careful there. Remember, just because Jose said we we can get a W two only file. Uh, remember, guys, just because it says that there's another rule that's not written here in this DU. That if there's any rental property income, any self-employed income, any of those things, even if you're not using it, aka you didn't put it on the app, tax returns are required. It's not optional. So make sure you don't read too much into exactly what it says there. Because if Jose had accidentally forgot that he has a side business and accidentally not disclosed that, you know, that would be a tax return required file, even if we don't use the income from that side business. Yeah. And then you may have a potential issue if you're bringing up a tax return, because then we're going to they're going to be looking at the write offs that they may be taking uh, in their in their profit and in, in their Schedule C or whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, and then they're going to look at the net income. So and that, that could affect the whole scenario because when they do the fraud guard, sometimes things come up like, hey, there's an LLC that this borrower has. Show me the information on that LLC. And then uh, it could open up a whole can of worms. In this case, my borrower is doesn't have any type of self-employment and is not reporting any rental property income. Because if there is rental property income, uh, just providing the lease is not going to suffice. You, you're going to have to provide the tax returns because they're going to want to look at how much rent they're actually claiming in gross rent. And then they're going to want to see all of the expenses that they're claiming. And a lot of times, uh, property owners get very creative on their investment properties and the write-offs that they take. Depreciation can be added back, but that's about it. So again, here in this one, though, we all they're asking for is a pay stub and a W-2 or a standard written verification of employment. Now, when they're talking about a pay stub, it means, you know, you'd have to refer to the Fannie Mae selling guide, which they ask for 30 days worth of pay stubs. So 30 days worth of pay stubs and a W-2 from the prior year, or you can use the standard written verification of employment form in lieu. Notice the pay stub must be dated no earlier than 30 days prior to the initial loan application date, and it needs to include year-to-date earnings, and you know it has to have all the complete information. Make sure you review those pay stubs very well, though, because pay stubs can also disclose some negative information like, uh, you know, undisclosed loans, undisclosed child support. What does the undisclosed loan show up as, okay, Jose? Like a 401k loan? Well, if it's a 401k loan or it could be other kinds of loans that they're just getting auto-debited from their earnings and it may not be showing on the credit report and they may have forgotten to tell you about it. Yeah. Make sure that you review those pay stubs well and you ask them, hey, what's this deduction? What's that deduction? I see this here. Now, on the 401k is not necessarily a deal killer if they have a 401k loan as long as they show 
You look at the Fannie Mae selling guide, as long as there's enough assets still in the 401k to cover the amount of the loan, you're good. Plus, I believe the guide says if it's a secured loan from the 401k, I think that that should be good. They're not going to hit you for it. But again, refer to the selling guide. Confirm that. The whole point of this part of the exercise is look at the pay stub very well. Don't just look at the earnings, net net income. Okay, that's fine. No, look at everything that's in there. Because, uh, I mean, in the past, I can tell you, you know, underwriters, they bring out the magnifying glass. They're looking at every single transaction in that pay stub. Another recommendation is if you have a nurse, get a written VOE. (laughs) (laughs) Nurses have crazy pay stubs, differential for night, differential for weekend, differential for the differential, the this, the that, the reimbursement for training. I mean, it's all over the place. So it's really hard to get their HR to write a letter of explanation explaining what everything is. So it's usually best to get that written VOE and they're going to put it where they got to put it. It's either going to Yeah, there's only three categories they get, right? They're just base pay, uh, commission or, you know, overtime, excuse me, base pay, overtime and other. Hopefully they don't put it in that other category because then that's where you may run into some issues if the other category is not the same every year. Because remember, those there's an average for two years on those. So my my borrower is easy, really easy. You know, nothing weird in his pay stub. Matter of fact, he only gets paid once a month, you know? So it's just one pay stub. So real easy. So notice here, just a little point as they tell you, if you use the written VOE, it must include year-to-date earnings as well as prior year earnings if a W-2 is not being provided. And and the written VOE is usually the way to go if you have a lot of overtime also, right, and bonus income. You're going to have to get that written VOE, and you're going to have to make sure if it's going to continue that they write in there that it's going to continue and that maybe they throw in something else. I think it's box number 20 in the remarks. You know, Try to have them be as detailed as possible on that. And... Now here, they're asking for either verbal, written, or who are not self-employed, no more than 10 business days. So it could be a written, verbal, or email verification of employment at least 10 business days prior to the note date. Uh, they, they updated that recently at the new thing. That's a new new way to write it. It used to just say VV, verbal. Yeah. Uh, but Jose, let me, let me drill you again. Just a redundant question here. What files besides this file will require a verbal VOE? Uh, verbal VOE would be any full doc file. Any, any. file with income yeah. from an employer, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. isn't just conventional, guys. This is every conventional. This is every FHA. This is every USDA. This is every Freddie Mac. And this is every non-QM file that includes income. So that's a great little tip there. At least they have a couple options now, but it used to be just verbal. If they're self-employed, you still have to do the verification, but it's different. The verification for the self-employed bar is to show that they're still, that that the business is still active. So usually you're going to be looking at showing recent contracts, bank deposits into the business account, you know, business activity, uh, plus maybe a processor cert or a letter of explanation, maybe a little letter from the accounting, the SunBiz showing that they're still active, you know, a couple of things that you're going to have to combine for the self-employed borrowers, depending what type of business they have and what type of documentation they can provide. It's not going to be a verbal where you're going to be calling them or the process is going to be calling them for for them to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm still in business. Now they're going to actually have to provide proof. So notice they put here direct verification by a third-party employment verification, like the work number. And notice how they have a specific category here, specific entry for military. Military is a little bit different. Notice they even provide the URL there for where you can go and obtain the military verifications. All right. So now they want my borrower to provide an IRS form 4506C, as in Charlie. Now there is a new form, 
I think that's 2021 it. or 2022, new, newer, newest version, yeah. 4506C. And we do have guidance for our team. We do have guidance in our knowledge center where you have uh, copies of that form, as well as copies of the verbal verification of employment form that you all can use to complete the verbal verification of employment. I'm going to ask you another stupid question, Jose, before you move on. Sure. What files require a completed and signed 4506C? <laughs> Any file that has income. Exactly. You so know? this isn't this isn't just DU guys, this is any and all files yeah. with income. Now there's a difference between completed and signed and the actual result, right? Some underwriters require the result. That's where then they need to verify something when we don't have like a signed tax return in the file yeah. and they need to actually verify it, right? So every file requires what you see there. Some files will require it to not only be completed and signed, but the results returned and retrieved, right? Verified. So a couple different kind of ins and outs there when it comes to that. And as Jose said, newest version of the form. They've changed it three times since it got released. Now, here's a nice little bullet point that touches base on this. Now, sometimes we can be lucky that DU can actually validate the income internally, right? That happens, you know, every now and then that it's a big enough company and they're reporting through wherever they got to report it. Uh, if DU can validate it internally, then it says a completed and signed form 4506C is not required. But in my case, it was not able even though this borrower works for a university and everything, they must not be reporting their data. So the 4506C signed has to be turned in. We don't have to execute it. We don't have to like go to request the transcripts. So now here we are in the assets section. So this is all based on the application, the cash to close, plus the accounts that were being paid off. Now this is going to change because when I go to final, now that you know the file is almost done with the document procurement and the processing and all that, he just he closed. On his purchase, he deposited the money, he paid off those accounts, I'm going to do the credit supplements, and then once the dust settles, I'm going to rerun automated underwriting, and uh, I'm not going to final it yet until I know I'm going to be clear to close, but I'm going to rerun it, and then that's going to be provided, and then that's going to have different uh, assets that are being ver need to be verified. But this here includes the account he was paying off, plus the cash to close no reserves. Make sure we run over what you mean between pre prelim, interim, and final when we get down to like the 23 section where it starts to pop up. Okay. Okay. Because well, I think I think you glanced over that too quick for everybody. Let's let's run okay. over it one more time. Now notice here number 15, since I did put that he had a pending sale when we did the DU, he hadn't closed yet on the home. So it says all net equity funds should be verified with a photocopy of the settlement statement, which he has already provided to me. And is not negative. He actually had, you know, proceeds. If depository assets, you know, let me put this up a little, if depository assets are needed to support the amount of funds and reserves, they're asking me for uh, a two-month period. So I need to provide two months' worth of bank statements. And if I do a VOD, direct verification provided by third party, asset verification are acceptable if completed accordance with the selling guide. They always refer you to the selling guide to make sure the correct form that you're and using. Our vendor there, guys, too. We have the vendor, our Fannie Mae day one certainty vendor's account check. So we can do the VOI, the VOE, and the VOA that Jose just went over. So that's our third party partner that we can use to supplement this report and actually get it cleared with a day one certainty vendor. <clears throat> so there it's talking about our earnest money that was listed on the contract. I think he had $5,000. We put that on the application. Um, they're saying that that is if the deposit is used to make any part of the borrower's minimum contribution that must come from their own funds, the source for the deposit must be verified. So the $5,000, we'd have to verify that it came from his account. That would be 
the account trend, you know, copy of the check that he's already provided, the account transaction history to show the $5,000 leaving his account. Jose, Very, let me ask you, that, that one, more often, that's one of the things that catches people off guard there, and they have to back out a EMD deposit. So pay attention to that, guys. It looks like the easiest one on the whole list, but it's actually not necessarily because you need to actually verify it and source it, right? Yep. Absolutely. And what happens a lot of times, I'm going to tell you, the application gets completed, a deposit gets put on there, account balances are put on the application, but the balances are from the month before the deposit was actually given. So the application really is not accurate because if you're putting that deposit and you're putting the account balance where you haven't deducted the fi- the 5000 out of there, then, you know, you got to do some reconciliation. You can't double there. count it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in my case here, he has a gift that he was getting. Uh, so he actually had two gifts. So they want a signed gift letter. And here's something that I want to explain uh, so that you don't confuse the conventional loan gift requirements with the FHA gift requirement. Notice bullet point, second bullet point there says documenting the transfer of the funds. All that means, that does not mean that you have to show the transaction history of the donor. That you have to do for an FHA loan. That just means you have to show the transfer, you know, like there's a check that was given. So they're going to ask you for the canceled check. Or maybe it was given in the form of a wire transfer. They're going to ask you for a copy of the wire transfer. As long as you can show clearly that that money came from the donor. So if, if, you know, hopefully the wire transfer document identifies the donor's name somewhere on there, right? Uh, Or if not, maybe the transaction history that the borrower in the borrower's account will show wire transfer from John Doe, right? Okay, we see John Doe gave him. That's fine. You just verified that who the money came from, right? You, so if you cannot show somehow or another something with the name of the donor as the transfer document, they're going to ask you for proof of the money leaving the donor's account to show, to be able to substantiate that they actually gave the money. So I've actually had that happen. We had a wire transfer in the incoming account. It doesn't show the money, the the name of the person who gave it. And then, you know, they had to get creative and they had to dig deep and find me the transfer document. And then ensuring the gift comes from an eligible source and does not come from an interested party to the transaction. So, you know, they're, they're usually looking at blood relatives but they will accept a close personal friend. You just have to document the relationship. It has to be really close, you know? I mean, I I had one recently where, you know, they had had to have the letter from the donor about I've known him 28 years, yada, yada, yada. We were going on vacations together, you know, lifelong friend, and another letter of explanation from the borrower about how close they were as friends in order to to make it, you know, plausible that somebody would be just giving you for free five or ten thousand dollars, you know. So that you know, be aware of that. It, it is possible with somebody other than a blood relative, but you gotta really document the file. And notice if the, it's not a gift if they gotta if it's obligated to repay, but if it is for whatever reason then you got to document the liability. Okay, now this is really important so you don't get off caught off guard, point number 19. Notice how every number is important here. Don't just look at the approved eligible at the top, get all happy and run with it, and then get hit with conditions from underwriting and say, where did that come from? Why are they asking me to document these deposits? I have... $300,000, isn't that enough for them? That's okay. But it says here, when depository assets are used to support the amount of funds required in reserves, document that any deposit that exceeds 
$3,145.84. Notice they're giving me the exact dollar amount. The exact. Which, if it's yeah. one penny more, yeah. guys, it's it has to be verified. And how did they arrive at that figure? Because it's 50% of the total income provided on the loan application. That's how they arrive at that figure. So they got, you know, DU gets the monthly income, you know, divides by two, and that's the number. So they'll let you slide on 500, 700, 900, but if it's 31, 45, and 85 cents, up, oh, you're one penny over, document that deposit. That's similar in your, you know, this is a little off topic, but in your bank statement loans, a lot of times that's what it's going to boil down to when you're doing bank statement. For income, they're usually going to put, obviously, refer to the guidelines because they're all different there, but they're going to refer to 50% of the monthly income as well. So in this case, uh, this is that. And, you know, I I had uh, like a 10, 15-minute conversation, conference call with this borrower and with his father that is his donor. Father is a CPA, so you know how those CPAs can be. Right. Uh, he did. He had a problem with why do I have to sign a gift letter? Why do I have to give him a gift letter? So I'm telling him because we have to document the large deposit. So I had to reach out and read the condition to him and tell him, listen, sir, OK, let me show. Let me go here. See what it says on the gift and then also see what it says. So even if it, if it wasn't a gift, if we say it's just a deposit, fine. But then I got to document the large deposit. So what do you want me to do? Document the gift or document the large deposit? We're gonna we're gonna go back to you. It's the same difference, either right? Way. Right. You're the source. So <laughs> finally, I beat him down. He's like, okay, whatever. Just send me that form. I'll sign it. But he, I don't know what his fear was. Oh, that's no. a good technique, though, guys, for the newbies out here. Remember, it's not us asking, right? It, we're with the borrower. We're like, yeah, we, I don't want to ask you for anything we don't need. It's not the law, right? It's not like we're citing the law, but you're citing the guidelines. It's clear as day. It's public, right? You can yeah. share this snippet with your borrower, or you could share the full guideline, which is like 10 pages long, that tells them exactly how gifts have to be documented. And they'll be like, oh, okay, I don't want to read that. You know, fine. Sorry. <laughs> Right. Real easy to, to send somebody a third party and say, look, this is the government basically telling you to do this. Not me. I, I, I don't care. Right. It's not us. So now number 20, here's where it gets interesting, because this property is a condo condominium. Now, in Florida, for those of you that may not be, you know, deal too much with the Florida market, condos usually have an issue of inadequate reserves you know people just don't want to pay the higher maintenance fees most of the most of the uh, homeowners don't want to have a reserve account because they want to keep the money you know the expenses down i mean it's penny wise and dollar foolish if you ask me but nevertheless in this case here is what's very interesting because it's telling me a limited review can and i'll explain what a limited review is in a minute but a limited review can be performed if the property is in an established project and the property is not ineligible as defined in the selling guide. Now, a limited review also has to follow. Let me see. Do they put another bullet point there? Well, probably down there. But uh, it, it, it has to follow the Fannie Mae guidelines of when a limited review can be done. Now, in every other state other than Florida at a 90 percent LTV or lower, you can do it as a limited review. Florida, it's 75% or lower for primary and second home and 70% or lower for investment property, right? So that's a good point to consider because what that does is then it allows you to use the short form, uh, which does not ask questions about the budget, does not ask questions about delinquencies in the collection of the month, monthly assessment. Uh, it also does not ask questions on the number of renters to uh, owner occupants because those are real big stumbling blocks in some communities that may have a high portionate amount of renters to owners or not collecting the 10% of the annual budget reserve, which many of them are not. Or that may have, I think the number is 15%, I believe, 15% or greater of the accounts could be delinquent, and then you wouldn't be able to get the financing. So in this case, my LTV was, you know, 40 whatever percent. 
so I can definitely do it. So let's see what the other points here says regarding that. So if the property is not in an established condominium project, ensure, okay, so we'd have to read the guide to see what they mean by that. If it's a detached condo, real interesting one here now. If it's uh, if there are such things as single, you know, detached, single family type looking condos. So if it's a detached condo or a project consisting of only two to four units, a project review is not required. That means you don't need the condo questionnaire. Totally. Real good situation there. And then notice how they tell us about if the property is located in a state in which specific project review guidelines apply and confirm the loan case file. So they're telling me, go to the guidelines and see if you're in Florida or not. <laughs> All right. So now here we're talking a little bit more about the address. Right. So standardized address. So no problem. See, let me let me touch on that one second, guys. Sure. If if you don't get a standardized address, you can't get what Jose is about to say for the next one, which is the golden ticket, right? The waiver. You also can't get really a valid DU, right? DU DU is not going to be valid until it returns a result, right? If if DU can't return a result on that parcel, aka your address isn't right, you're technically not. You don't have a full DU. It might say approve eligible at the top, but you're going to get a bunch of little errors here that you're going to have to resolve. Right by the end of the loan, right? <laughs> so make sure you're, just because you have a proof eligible doesn't mean that you've cleared all these conditions. So remember, if it if it says here you didn't get a result on standardized address, you can't do the loan until you get a result on the standardized address. <laughs> so so just because it, it said, yeah, sure, if this if this house does exist, you can do it. But until it gets a result that's, that shows this house exists, uh, it won't actually work, right? That's why it's so important to make sure that you have the address Correct. Don't just go by the, the address that the realtor put on the contract, please. So we got our standardized address. Um, you know, num the second bullet point is just playing off a little bit of that. And so it's telling you if you don't if you don't get it, you're gonna need a full interior and exterior appraisal. It's telling me now this is very important. Bullet point number three is letting me know that the appraisal, if, if I'm going to use an appraisal, must be on Form 1073. That's a specific form number for a condo. But now, but, uh, point number 22 tells me DU accepts the value submitted by the lender for this subject property. That's an appraisal waiver. To exercise the value acceptance, Notice it has in parentheses appraisal waiver offer with representation and warranty relief on the value, condition and marketability of the subject property. The loan delivery file must include the case file ID and special feature code 801. So right there, that's what it's letting us know, which is great because let me tell you, uh, that's how you get these deals, you know, because there were like, uh, you know, six or seven offers for this property. And, you know, this one here is like, hey, don't worry about the appraisal. We're good for it. You know, so that's and that's what gets you the deal. That and and they went above list price. I think they went like $21,000 above list price. But we got the appraisal waiver. So let's keep going now to our observations here. So run this run this over one time, Jose. This is where we need to talk about. Uh, did you do this? Is prelim? So you still haven't done interim yet. So right. This is prelim. So explain prelim, interim, and right. final, please. So notice there, number twenty three, where it says the loan case file was submitted to by us to preliminary findings. So because remember that's at the onset of the case. That's the initial application represented to you we have to vet the information right we got to vet everything we got to gather up our documents we got to do all these things that we need to do like i was mentioning a few numbers up there so that then i can update my application and then run the the aus as an interim report 
which is going to now be associated with an investor, right? Where who is going to be the end investor on this file, right? And then in the end, when the file is clear to close and they're telling you, okay, please finalize the DU to the investor. Once you finalize that report, you don't have access to it anymore. The investor so does. Don't you, final it until you're ready, guys. Yeah. <laughs> AKA, right? Yeah. You final it too quick, pull the trigger. You're going to have to tell the investor, hey, uh, investor, can you release that DU back to us, please, so that we can work on it? Because we got to make some changes. So, I'll And a change it. could be as small as one penny on insurance, yep. right? One yep. penny on insurance. And now you're delayed two days to try to get a DU released and back to you and then fix oh, and then sit yes. back and then sit back to the underwriting and then clear it again. Oh, my goodness. Nightmares. Please, please don't let one penny <laughs> take two days, three days. All right. So I think we are good here. So let's keep going down. Special code, our only special code. We got a, a D, you know, it's telling us here, refer to, refer to the special feature codes list on Fannie for a comprehensive list of what that actually means. If there's anything weird here so du loan value acceptance waiver we're good to go there and here it's telling me the credit report associated with the file of our name credit report id i mean shouldn't be somebody else right and the report date that's why it said september 8th because that would be 120 days now here's a little message here if I was doing, uh, this is more for the home possible or home ready type loans where you're talking about Fannie Mae and the AMI and all that kind of stuff. And the census track is more where you got to pay attention to uh, these messages to see what is possible. You know, you're, you're going to go to this, to the census track where the property is, it's going to tell you what 80% is or what 100% is, depending on what program you're doing. Maybe you got to be under 80% or maybe you got to be under 100%. So, But remember, if you don't put the address in, the standardized yep. address, you can't do any of those AMI-based loans because you won't have a valid census track result. So make sure, again, everything has to be perfect. It might throw out an approve, but if you're going for that special code and it doesn't have that special map to AMI and it doesn't convert that, you don't technically have an approval. And here's letting me know the area median income, also known as AMI for this area, is 77900 So then they're telling us some more information here on number 28 for some of those other types of programs where they're trying to promote additional Home ownership, you can look at that and see if it pertains to your case. Letting you know a minority census tract is a kind of census tract that has a minority population of at least 30% and a median income of less than 100% of AMI. And the reason it's telling me that, you know, my deal could qualify is because, as you all know, in South Florida, we're about nine, I don't know, I would say that census tract is probably about 90% minority you know, uh, which would be everybody other than uh, Americans. So, you know, you got all the Hispanics from all over the place. You got you got Black Americans. You got, you know, a lot. So that's the beautiful thing about doing business down here is we got a lot of diversity. Following credit scores, let me know what we got right there. Obviously, it's a beautiful thing when you got a 764 middle score, right? No pain there. And this is just a rehash, letting me know my base employment income, 6291.67. And here, our gift of cash, net equity from the sale of the house. And this is what he had in the checking account when the application was submitted. The account that we marked that was going to be paid off letting me know what I got to do to exercise the appraisal waiver. And then over here, again, the underwriting analysis. This is where it's good that you have to look at this and compare this page, especially to the to your application in your LOS. In our case, we use Encompass. 
to see if it's the same. You know, look at the principal and interest uh, that, you know, doesn't change the interest rate, DTI, LTV, all of this stuff right here. So make it has to match exact. Can't be, well, shouldn't be any reason. Now, what happens sometimes is that DU, you know, is smart, right? And it's going to say, wait a minute, that's an installment account. There's less than 10 payments left on that installment account. You don't get accounted. So DU will do the work for you that you forgot to click on where you're supposed to like exclude liabilities because there's less than X number of payments and you're supposed to go into the application and input that information there so that the DTI correct is correctly reflected in Encompass. That could be a reason why you could have a DTI difference in your installment accounts. So. So here now is including less than or equal to 10 months, 46.28. I don't think he had any of those in his account. And then my proposed monthly payment. Now, this on my interim is going to change because I just I just received today the uh, the binder for the interior insurance, and it came out a little bit higher. I quoted $1,800. I estimated $1,800. It came out to $2,100 and change. And also, uh, we have a flood cert that showed that the, a portion of the property is in a flood zone, so they need flood insurance as well. So that's going to be an additional payment that will be okay in our DTI. No MI, of course, a nice low payment. And my total expense payments, that's another thing where you got to see, you know, reconcile and make sure my all other payments is $801, you know, so you can make sure that it adds up. You don't have any discrepancies. HOA fee, you can see why this is $610 and they don't have reserves. <laughs> $610 a month. That's a lot of cheese. And that's it. And here is now where it's telling me my funds required. And look here now, total funds to be verified is the same amount. There, And because it's not because of my low LTV and my high credit score, it's saying I don't have to verify any money above this, which is fine. Even though my borrower has 16 months worth of reserves, even though it says excess available assets not required to be verified by DU, 35,663.79, but it's not needed. So this is where you would go to figure out what's the issue with my file. Why am I not getting the proof eligible sometimes, or why am I getting an approved ineligible? Usually will be because you don't have enough assets or maybe not have enough you know, reserves. So preliminary recommendation for this case is approve eligible. So now that I got my insurance today was my final missing link. I'm going to get the flood insurance through Neptune so that I don't have to get uh, an elevation certificate because this is a condo. They're not ordering a survey. So the borrower would have to pay like $250 to order an elevation certificate. And uh, that would be a delay of three or four or five days. So we go to Neptune, and I'm pretty sure that it's going to be four or $500 for the insurance. And they're going to bind it, like, right away, immediate, as soon as you pay, of course. And we can put our, our mortgage clause. clause in there. Everything, uh, one, it's beautiful. Yeah, one thing I want to touch on here, the reserves, guys, that last number, one of the most important numbers there, months reserves. As Jose said, sometimes it needs confirmed, obviously, right, if you're – if you get an approved ineligible, many times you'll be short on reserves and it'll tell you right there. But even when in Jose's case, that's one of the reasons he got a waiver because those are uh, you know, contributing factors that are going to mitigate the risk, how many reserves. So even though it wasn't used to be verified, that number of 16 months is what triggered the PIW and all the other great stuff that was on this approval. So remember guys, make sure your reserves show up correctly. That's going to obviously be your you know contributing factor to trigger a lot of the other positive results on the whole file. And that is it. So let me share my screen. That was great. I think we have a couple of questions. We went a little over an hour, so we'll wrap it up shortly. But let's see here. Got some questions. Jose almost hit this question while you were talking about it, Jose. 
Elevation cert and floor of the condo. Really kind of dumb rule there, huh? Yeah, I'm going to tell you what, it doesn't matter. Yep. They're going to, because if, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out why, but I've had him where, what, what happens is, unfortunately, in these cases, now I haven't received the condo master policy yet, nor the condo questionnaire yet. That should be coming in in the next day or two. But when when we get it and we turn it in, you know, they're going to that's going to say a certain amount of coverage and they're going to look at how many units are being covered. And they're usually going to come back and tell you the coverage is not adequate and your borrower has to get flood insurance. Right. I had it happen on a condo that was on like the 15th floor. I'm thinking, okay, but what's going to (laughs) happen? I mean, but flooding can happen from a lot of different ways. Flooding can happen where, you know, the sewage system of the building may not be able to properly drain. And then all of the toilets and everything, all of the water could back up into all the units. They, they, they would tell you, hey, wait a minute, that's a flood. That's not, that's not, you know, so, I mean, it could be a lot of things. But, you know, the underwriters require it and they're not going to close the loan if they're requiring it to have floods. So, yeah, you can't say, wait, it's on the 15th floor. They could say, oh, the whole bottom of the building could flood and could stay flooded for months. OK, what, what do I do that? I don't know how flood insurance is going to help me. But, you know, yeah, it's one of those things that you scratch your head and say, why do I need it? You just better hope that it's not expensive. And then, again, how do you do an elevation certificate? For the unit on the fifteenth floor, yeah, that's, and why? Right. <laughs> so use Neptune, and, and you don't need an elevation certificate. But if you go through the standard optional flood insurance plan, you're gonna be required an elevation certificate. It's gonna you're, they're gonna have to do the flood application, and unless you have a really good agent that's willing to work with you. They're going to, you're going to have to, the borrower is going to have to pay for the flood policy and you're going to have to wait for the flood policy to be issued before they, before they provide the deck page to you. So great question. I say Paul's question, I believe is when we were talking about if a tax return uh, is required is required for self-employed income. guess what the right answer point. is always read the guidelines right yeah. that's jose uh, yeah. to answer right i can't tell you the answer the guidelines will tell the answer they change often but i will tell you that if there is rental income on there it 100 says tax returns are not optional so. what, what they're gonna do now what paul is referring to there is an unseasoned rental right mm-hmm. so if it's an unseasoned rental in other words uh, you bought it in January, February, March, right? Whatever. You haven't filed a, t- a tax return yet because, you know, 2020, if you would have bought it in November of 2020, 2021, uh, it would have had to have been on your 2022 tax return. And if it wasn't on the 2022 tax return, they're not going to let you include the income at all. It's like, sorry, you can't use it because you didn't claim it. If it if you would have bought it after you know on January fifth, twenty twenty two, it doesn't have to be on the tax return. Well, I don't know what you, but you know what I mean, right? On the twenty, the one that would have been this year. But if you bought it now in January of this year, twenty twenty three, it would not have to be on the twenty twenty two tax return. And then you would go with seventy five percent of the income. Uh, you'd have to provide the lease. And depending what you know what month you're in, if it's already now in July, you'd have to show at least three months of the income received. That's usually what I see the underwriter asking for proof of receipt of that full amount for the last three months. And then they're going to chop it to 75%, but you also have to have the lease. So if, you're, if your landlord is collecting cash and not depositing it in the bank, uh, and uh, they're going to be out of gas. They're not going to let them use the income at all. All right. Great questions. Great topic. Great training. When I sent out the promo for this, I said, 
Very important. This is a good one. And we're actually going to continue this somewhat tomorrow. So Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern time. It's going to be kind of a part two to this going <laughs> deeper into structuring, you know, Fannie Mae conventional loans. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for the great questions. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jose, for the breakdown. And we hope to see you all tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern time for the next episode of the Loan Officer Training Series with the Mortgage Calculator. Take care, everyone. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. Loan officers, join the mortgage calculator as an MLO for unlimited mortgage leads and up to 250 BPS compensation.